Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I have been looking so forward to sharing this week's episode with you because I think you're really going to love it. If you've ever struggled with perfection or maybe questioned how to use humor effectively in presentations or pitches, or maybe thought there must be a different way to have conversations about diversity and inclusion. You are going to love this multifaceted conversation with this week's guest. We cover a lot of territory, but it's really a great conversation. Kareth Foster is a recovering stand-up comedian who found her passion by thinking about a different way to use humor. We don't always think about comedy as a transferable skill, but Kareth found a way to do just that. And the story that led her to that point is one you will not want to miss. I met Kareth Foster at a recent gathering of the Policy Circle. Now, if you don't know about the Policy Circle, I've included a link in the show notes where you can learn a bit more. But suffice it to say, it brings together an incredible group of women who are engaging and leading in their communities and who are committed to always learning. This approach to lifelong learning and of seeking inspiration is an important component needed to not only build influence, but sustain it. So I hope you'll check that out. I have split this week's episode with Kareth into two parts. Part one is episode 218. That's this one, the one that you're listening to now. And in part one, Kareth and I talk about her journey how she made the pivot from aspiring journalist to stand-up comedian to the work that she's doing now. There are a number of important takeaways in this conversation, but the one that I want to highlight relates to the importance of saying yes, but what happens when yes leads you down a pretty dark road? This is actually my favorite part of the conversation. It is very powerful and it's really thought provoking. So I'll be interested in your feedback. Friend, I want to be very transparent about something. I really struggled with one aspect of this episode. In this conversation, Kareth tells us the story about how she came to work for the late Don Imus. 
In the story, she quotes both Don Imus and his then-executive producer, a guy named Bernard McGurk, both of whom shared a series of particularly offensive racial slurs that were aimed at the Rutgers women's basketball team back in 2007. That exchange put both men in hot water, especially Don Imus, and for good reason. But it also led to Kareth's hiring on the show. Now, I'll be honest, I edited this particular segment of the conversation several times. At one point, I took the offensive comments out, even though Kareth was quoting someone else. When I reached out to her to discuss this and my concern, her response prompted me to change my mind. She said, it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's healthy because it's a decency gauge. And the reality is life isn't always comfortable and pretty. How right she is about that. By telling me and you this story and quoting the offensive language, Kareth is illustrating this point really clearly. And given that she spends her time these days having these tough conversations and also encouraging a greater degree of understanding and empathy, I ultimately agreed with her and I decided to leave the comments in. But I want to be very clear. That language is offensive and I hate it. But by leaving it in, as I ultimately did, I'm not condoning it, nor is Kareth but instead using it as an opportunity to really illustrate her broader point. She explains that in our exchange. Now, friend, I know that you will have opinions on this and on whether I made the right call here, and I'd be interested in hearing your views. Whatever they may be, please do know that I did carefully consider this before sharing this episode with you, And I wanted to be fully transparent about the process that I went through to ultimately reach this conclusion. So with that, here is part one of my two-part conversation with the fabulous Kareth Foster. Kareth, welcome to She Said, She Said. Hello, Laura. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. When you and I met a few weeks back at the Policy Circles Annual Summit, I told you <laughs> on the spot, you got to come on. She said, she said, my audience will really, really love you and love your story. So I'm thrilled that you're here today. Well, it's a treat to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. So let's jump in. As you and I talked about, there's a lot of dimensions of your story and so many things that are people are going to be fascinated by and that will really resonate with them. But maybe let's start by talking about your current work. What do you do? Maybe tell us a little bit about what you're working on these days. Absolutely. So I am the creator of Inversity. And uh, my company is Inversity Solutions. And I, I came up with that word because when I took a really good hard look at what was happening in the world of diversity and inclusion or diversity, equity, inclusion, now diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, I'm sure we'll add another letter eventually. Um, I, I, I saw there was, there was a deficit and there was a gap. And there was a, a serious problem with all these efforts, all this money, I mean, billions and billions of dollars being poured into diversity efforts. And yet 
the results weren't weren't there. We were we're, we're more divided. We're more polarized. What what was missing? What was happening that wasn't right? And um, I, to borrow a term from our friend Ian Rowe, I wanted to give people a an empowered alternative to still have thoughtful conversations around diversity and celebrate everything that we are and what we bring to the table. Um, but the idea is instead of focusing just on like the law of attraction, right? Where you focus on, you get more of. If we focus on our differences and what separates us, that's what we're gonna get more of. So within inversity, the idea is to acknowledge and honor who we are, our identity, what we bring to the table, but shift the focus from what separates and divides us to what do we have in common? How can we be truly inclusive of one another? But most importantly and powerfully, how can we be introspective? Meaning understanding your value, your worth, your connection to humanity. So instead of working from the outside in like we've been doing for decades now, it's time to work from the inside out and have real results. And so from that perspective, I've created a series of keynotes workshops and online curriculum that right now is about seven modules. I speak at corporations, um, organizations across the country. I, you know, I just got to join you all at the policy circle. I was just with the philanthropy Roundtable. Um, I speak to fortune 100 companies and small businesses. Anyone who's interested in having a conversation, a thoughtful and intentional conversation around diversity and inclusion, um, in a, in a healthy, responsible way. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of maybe the biggest difference or biggest differences between how you're approaching this topic and maybe how other consultants are approaching the topic? Sure. And, and for the record, I do want to say that I believe most people who are in this arena of diversity and inclusion, I believe their hearts are in the right place. Mm. I just think that there's only been one way to go about this for so long, that the idea of maybe there being a different way, a, a different approach, one that is a little more thoughtful, one that's a little more considerate, one that doesn't have the polarizing effects of excluding people from conversations based on their ethnicity or their gender. Um, like that, because that, to me, it's, 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 it's almost like reversing the effects of what you're wanting to do. You know, I, I think of safe, safe spaces as segregation 2.0. I mean, mm -hmm. I understand why they exist. I understand why people want a place to commune, but how about let's have brave spaces, right? Where everyone can show up as who they are in their authentic selves, as their authentic selves, but we're also brave enough to have conversations to include the people who need to be enrolled in the conversations and understand your experience and position. So I, I, I certainly, you know, I use language a little differently than um, people in traditional DNI. I don't really care for the term privilege. Um, you know, quite honestly, anytime I, I speak to an audience, regardless of their ethnicity, um, you know, if they're working at a company and they have access to the internet, they have privilege, right? Most of us have a roof over our heads. If we're literate, we have privilege. If we have clean water, we have privilege. Um, I prefer the term advantage. Right. And there's certainly advantages that we cannot deny. You know, if you happen to be a certain gender, if you happen to come from a certain ethnicity, if you happen to be from a socio certain socioeconomic status, right? If you're attractive, you have an advantage over the people who do not have those things. And with that comes understanding that, not beating yourself up about it, not no self flagellation, but understanding that because you have this advantage, you're in a position to be an advocate now for the people who don't. Mm -hmm. 
And lastly, I use humor. I do have comedy in my background. Um, I went to school for broadcast journalism. Uh, that's what I got my degree in. I worked at a local ABC affiliate years ago, actually with Savannah Guthrie from the Today Show. And then I moved to New York City uh, because I got a job at The View. And I thought, who better than Barbara Walters to have as a boss? Amazing. And I got there and it was a tremendous experience. I mean, I learned so much about writing, producing, booking. Um, but I also, there was this kind of like tinge of wanting to be on the other side of the camera too. And so um, I got bit by the bug and I started doing stand-up comedy. I found it while I was there. or It found me. Um, and and it, it just, I, I've had a very full life in this short time that I've been on this planet. And I'm so, so grateful. But, you know, when you were saying, how do we unpack all of this? Because I have been in different spaces. I've worked in human resources while I was pursuing stand-up comedy uh, for, for Estee Lauder, a Fortune 100 cosmetics company. Um, I got to have those incredible experiences too. But all of the things that I've done have really culminated to, I think, where I am right now. And I'm, I'm so grateful again. Yeah. Okay. So, so fascinating. And I want to unpack so much of this. So, so the, the work that you did in stand-up comedy, had you always been that kid or that person that, that people no. said, oh my God, you're so funny. You've got to pursue stand-up no. comedy. How did you find it or it find you? I was the dork in cool kids clothing, right? Like I was, <laughs> you know, I did a little like kind of like cheerleading stuff, but I was also like vice president of the Latin club. So, <laughs> and I never had a click. I just kind of like, I, I was the social butterfly. And again, you know, things when you're so much younger, you think, oh, I don't have a click. I don't have a sub group of friends. And now I realize again, what a gift that was because I could, I could matriculate in and out with different people. And, and, and that's worked so wonderfully now as an adult. Um, but I always appreciated stand-up. I always thought stand-up comedians were some of the funniest, smartest people on the planet. And they are. They are some of the most intelligent people that are walking the face of this earth. And I'm not just saying that because I am one and I've done it. But the way that comedians think, um, to be able to take something that's very simple and extrapolate on it and take it to a whole other level and take something that's very complex and break it down. Like there, There's a genius to that. And, and there's a genius... In being able to touch on topics that are very taboo, to mm. to speak on topics that are very personal, right? I mean, there's the the old age old uh, adage and equation of tragedy plus time equals comedy, right? And so if you look at who some of the stellar comedians are from right now and from our past, it's people who traditionally come from groups that haven't had a lot of trauma. You know, a lot of black comedians, a lot of Jewish comedians, um, you know, women who are now coming into the ranks of being household names. And so it's a it, it's such a wonderful way to bring people together. And again, mm. I never thought I was going to be a stand up comedian because I it wasn't I wasn't the class clown. I wasn't super outgoing in that way. Like I wasn't on all the time, but I was quirky. And I, I had a, I had a, you know, a twisted kind of way of seeing things and a little bit of sense of humor and, and uh, twisted sense of humor. And so I think when I got the introduction to be able to actually learn how to do it, I, I just went with it. Yeah. You talk about in a lot of your materials and a lot of your speeches and even in your fabulous book, which we're going to get to in a second. Um, but you talk about the importance of using humor and how it can, you know, there's scientific evidence 
that backs up the fact that it makes what you're saying more memorable. You make a bigger impression that teachers have a bigger impact on their students when they use humor. But what about for the person like you are gifted, you have that natural gene, but what about for people who really don't? I've always heard the advice and I'm sure that the, my audience listening has too, that if you're not funny, don't try to be funny. <laughs> so, so how do we, how do we sort of take, you know, humor, if it doesn't come as naturally to us, is there something we can do to, to kind of help finesse that? Well, I believe everybody has the ability to be funny and has humor because, you know, we, we will laugh at certain things. That doesn't mean you're going to be a professional right off the gate and you're going to, you know, go hit the stage. But you just having the ability to laugh at yourself, to laugh at, at the, you know, being human and being fallible and making mistakes, like that's a great place to start, right? It doesn't, humor doesn't have to be... Um, you know, you don't have to take anything away from someone else. You don't have to attack anyone else. You don't have to insult anyone else. And you certainly don't have to, you know, again, you know, go into this place where you're beating yourself up. Um, but just, you know, looking at something and being like, oh, that was so silly. I can't believe I did that. And things that tickle you will usually tickle someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're what you're getting at is this whole notion of being self-deprecating with your humor, right? Not taking yourself too seriously, being self-deprecating. How do you how do you balance that what can sometimes be a fine line for women where in the interest of being, you know, quote unquote self-deprecating, we can sometimes run the risk of undercutting our credibility. And I know I think you touch on this is in, in the book, but I'd love to get your advice on how do you strike the right balance? So you are being self-deprecating in the interest of adding humor to what you're saying, right? but you're not hurting your credibility with your audience. Right. To a degree. And that's when you have to use your judgment and your intuition and of course boundaries right mm -hmm. like boundaries i'm sure is something you talk about all the time on on, on this amazing podcast uh, and the idea is to you know not let yourself be necessarily the butt of the jokes but again appreciating the humanity that you're bringing to the table it's just like apologizing right mm -hmm. like right women tend to say i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry for, for things they have no control over the weather the traffic those types of things you know it's, it's the same with finding that self-deprecating humor and finding that balance right so that yeah. you're not over correcting for something and you're not um apologizing for who you are through your humor yeah, that often often comes as a desire to be liked, you know, that Absolutely. we want to connect with our audience and that we sometimes in what can sometimes be a misdirected way can over apologize in the interest of trying to make that connection. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you know, we're all figuring this out, this whole life thing, <laughs> you know. So again, if you realize, oh, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm going to reel it back in. Like, that's what you can do. You have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, nothing's in stone. Nothing's permanent. Just, you know, catch yourself the next time so you don't go there. Yeah. I'd love for you, Kareth, to take us back again. You talked a bit about your story and a couple of your interesting adventures, but maybe when you made that career pivot, um, we talk a lot on this podcast about career pivots, how challenging that can be, knowing when the right moment is to ultimately you know, say, okay, this is it. I'm going to be we, a stand-up comedian. We, yeah. <laughs> I can't That was imagine. a fun conversation with my parents. 
<laughs> so tell us about that experience, both the experience of deciding this is the path you wanted to pursue. And then when you decided, okay, uh, enough of this, I'm going to do something different. I wish I could say it was just that it was this clarity moment, this aha. It was, it wasn't. In fact, when I was at The View, as I said, I, I'm very grateful for that experience. But the first year was a whirlwind. It was a startup show. Uh-huh. The second year, I was really unhappy. I, I, I wasn't like something, it wasn't sitting well with my soul. I wasn't where I was supposed to be. And I knew this. And I often, I make the reference. Do you remember the film, The Devil Wears Prada? Oh, yeah, of course. Right? And Anne Hathaway's One of my character. Favorites. Right? Brilliant, brilliant film. Um, from the fashion to, uh, you know, Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway. Everything. Everything. And everything was great in that movie, <laughs> right? It, it gets 100 Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but there's a, a line that Anne Hathaway's character says, and she's like, a million girls would kill for this job. Why am I miserable? Mm. And that was me. That was me at The View. And I was terrified to leave because who who leaves working for Barbara Walters? Like you know what I mean? Like who mm-hmm. leaves a job where you can have the opportunity to climb the the ladder? I mean, this is what I got my degree in. I set my sights. I was going to be this beacon of light and truth and figure out how to get into this industry one way or another. And but it wasn't it wasn't sitting right. Like I actually physically got so ill, my blood pressure dropped to like ninety over fifty. There was nothing oh wrong God. with me. I just wasn't happy. And um, as my friend who became like my big brother, he was the announcer for The View for so long. He's like, you know what? The universe is going to it's going to push you one way or another. And I actually did ended up I ended up getting kind of kicked out. Um, I found out later why it was very it's a a wild story. I I was confiding in someone who I thought was a confident, a confidant Mm -hmm. um, who I was supporting and saying, you know, I think I want to move to England. I think I want to write a book. Like all these dreams and aspirations I'm sharing with her. And she's like, I don't think Kara is going to be able to help me do what I want to do. So she basically got me fired. Oh, my. Wow. <laughs> Which I'm so grateful for now. Right at the time, it's like, and I talk about this in my book. Why did this happen to me versus why did this happen for me? Right. And it happened for me. It happened for me. I didn't see it at the time. I didn't see it for a couple of years. But it happened for me so that I could deep dive into stand-up comedy, right? And hang out with some of the greats like Patrice O'Neill and Lisa Lampanelli and really get my feet wet and see if this was something I wanted to do. And it was. Uh, but for after about, I don't know, three or four months of my living that life, my mother was like, please get health insurance. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I started temping at Estee Lauder. Um, basically became the second assistant to the senior VP of global HR that became a, ended up becoming a full-time job. Uh And I I worked with, you know, actually, you know, the lauders and the senior VPs and all of the, the, the big wigs. And it was a wonderful experience because I I got this HR background. And there was a time when I was there, I was like, God, really? You know, this is not what I want to do. Why do you have me doing this? Why corporate America is not my jam. Well, now I know why I was there and why it happened for me versus to me, because now I speak at corporations across the country and the world. And most of the people I work with are in HR and I know where they're coming from. and I know what they're trying to do and I can speak to them where they are. Yeah. And so, you know. Yeah. It, so you've you've hit on several things, including the the theme or the topic from 
our last episode, which was focused on fear, but specifically the stories that we tell ourselves and how those stories oftentimes are the reason why we're afraid of various things. And I'm not talking about, you know, being chased by a bear or legitimate things to be afraid of. I'm talking about the things that we do in our own heads. And so there were several examples in what you just said about taking the experience and turning it into a positive by telling yourself a different story. Maybe give the audience listening a little bit of advice around how you did that and how you came to terms with betrayal and with, you know, jobs that weren't working, but finding value in what you were learning. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, I mean, there is the adage again, everything happens for a reason. Right. And I've, I've always believed that I really have. Of course, there's this new meme out there that's really funny that says, yeah, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason is you're <laughs> you're stupid and you make bad choices. <laughs> <laughs> and that can be applied to some people, too. <laughs> but as far as everything happening for a reason, you know, I, I, I always I always I, I just have this inner faith. I have this inner belief that God the universe source, however you wish to, 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 to call that power that we're connected to, our higher power, always has my best interest at heart and that I will never stray too far from the path I'm supposed to be on. I mean, yes, I have free will, of course, everybody does, um, but the idea is to try to be as connected to that power as possible so that you are guided and not making as many quote-unquote errors um, as you might be if you weren't connected. And I, I, you know, in my book, I say it's, it's not a mistake if you got something out of it. It's not a mistake if you learned from it, right? You know, maybe I had to go down that path to know that that wasn't really what I wanted to do in the first place. That wasn't a mistake. I got something out of it. It wasn't a waste of time. Um, and I think a driving factor for me isn't so much that I don't get scared because, oh, I do. I, I, I like, But I take the risks anyway. And I think so much of that has to do with the what ifs, like I cannot live with what if, what if I didn't do this? What if I didn't try that? And that came from a very uh, huge opportunity that I had that I did not take. I had been doing stand up about, I don't know, five years or so. And I had become friends with Larry the Cable Guy, uh, you know, from the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, the vo voice of Mater, uh, the tow truck in the Disney right. movies. And um, we become very close. He's still a dear friend to this day, Dan Whitney. And um, but he had just blown up, and Comedy Central was roasting him on their network. And my manager at the time, who unfortunately was a little wet behind the ears, said, "Hey, Kareth, Comedy Central wants to see if you want to sit on the dais for Larry the Cable Guy's roast." And my immediate like heart went into like palpitations. I, I my immediate thought was, am I going to be able to do this? You know, they say it takes seven years to find your voice as a comedian. I've only been doing this fight, like the fear creeping in, yeah. right? I'm not right. enough. Um, I reached out to other comics who were more senior than myself and said, well, what would you do? And they all said, well, you only get one chance to make a first impression. You don't want to blow it. Looking back, of course, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Some of them might have been jealous that I was mm -hmm. getting this opportunity and they'd been in the game five, three times as long as I had. Some of them might have been projecting their fear onto me because that's what they would have said and done. And I ended up turning it down, saying no. And I, I didn't want to, but I just thought I can't risk 
failing miserably in front of all these network executives on national television. And it didn't feel good, but I did it anyway. I said no. My manager let me say no. And a few years later, I'm in L.A. I'd, I'd been in New York for some time. I went out, out to L.A. for a, a brief hiatus after another job I'm sure we'll talk about. And uh, I see a friend post on, on social media that he got a job writing for Comedy Central. Now, the comedy business, entertainment, is not for the weak of spirit or faint of heart. So anytime I see somebody get something, like, I celebrate them. And so I reached out. I'm like, congratulations. That's so cool. What what show are you writing for, for Comedy Central? He goes, well, it's not really a show. I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, I'm writing for the roasts. I go, I'm sorry, you're, you're what? You're writing for the what? And it was like a gut punch, right, mm-hmm. Laura? It was like... All of a sudden, like, just a ton of bricks fell on me. And I realized if I had said yes, I wouldn't have been alone. Mm-hmm. If I had said yes, I would have had support. I wouldn't have had to write all my stuff. I mean, it still would have been me, and I would have gotten to craft things, but I would have I would have had a team around me. And that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I take when I speak, especially to young women, is when something scares the hell out of you, but you want it, you say yes. And that, yes, is the golden key to the city of opportunity. Because somehow, some way, the right material, the right tools, the right people will come into place. Now, you can't just sit back passively and be like, okay, world. I said yes. Yeah, bring it right? on. <laughs> right? You have to actively like do something. You have to, yeah. you know. Um, but just that saying yes, it's, yeah. it's the magic word. Yeah. Kareth, let's talk for a second about, okay, the person who says yes, she's absolutely terrified. What next? Maybe give advice for how you channel that fear. Once you've said yes, you're going to do it. You know you're doing it. You know you're going to challenge yourself. How do you come to terms with the fear? How do you sort of take that next step once you've said, okay, fine, I'm going to do it. Talk about talk about how to manage the what comes next. Well, it's like eating an elephant, right? You don't eat it all <laughs> at once. It's one bite at a time. And so you can have the end goal in mind, and that's very important, right? You have to have goals. You have to have dreams. You have to have your sights set on something. But understand that everything is a process, and there is nothing that is overnight. Like I, I, I jokingly say, I'm a, I'm a 22 and a half year overnight success. <laughs> 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 you know, this this started a while ago. So you, in addition to the interesting career experiences that we've already talked about, you also had an experience working with Don Imus at Imus in the Morning. And he was, you know, is remembered to be someone who was, let's say, very challenging to work for. To, <laughs> very to diplomatic Extremely of you, polite and diplomatic. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, tell us that, that story and sort of how that experience maybe led you to the work that you're pursuing now. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it really goes back to the day that like the you know what hit the fan with mm-hmm. his comment about the Rutgers women's basketball team. It was my uncle's funeral. I remember this day very, very clearly because it was my uncle's funeral. I was in New Jersey on my grandmother's bed watching the news and watching just everything blow up. And it was it was the perfect combination of an old rich white guy trying to be hip and cool, say something funny, a completely slow news day, and it caught like wildfire. <laughs> What was your role at the show? Were you a writer for the show? Sure. No, no. I was an on-air personality. So I'm watching this. This is April 2007. I'm watching this explode on the news thinking I should have been there. 
six months later, I get a phone call from a booker saying, hey, Karen, are you interested in a radio television opportunity? Wow. And I said, uh, yeah, sure, of course. By the way, it's with Don Imus. Oh, my. And I remember going, um, nappy-headed hose, Don Imus, like the wow. same one I saw on the news. She's like, yeah, that would be the one. Wow. And I was headlining. Uh, I was doing stand-up comedy, performing at a club in Kansas City. I was supposed to go home to Dallas to visit family. And he's like, you need to get back to New York as soon as possible because Imus wants to meet with you. And I just remember, again, like this heart palpitations in my head, like what is happening? The world is spinning. And I met with him. And, and the thing was, and I, I really like to offer this clarification too, because um, for those who do not remember, he, he was doing a broadcast. They were covering sports. Um, his producer, Bernard McGurk, who unfortunately just passed away recently, said, um, well, those, he was, there was Rutgers University playing against Tennessee. And Rutgers had a, a very distinctly African-American lineup of players, and Tennessee did not. Um, and Bernie, his producer, goes, wow, those are some hardcore hoes. Oh, and Imus, parroting him, says, yeah, them are some nappy-headed hoes. Which, if you go back and watch the tape, like that's exactly how it went down. Now, people only heard what Imus said, because he was the star of the show. What I saw, I saw, I saw it in multiple from multiple viewpoints i saw it as a comedian right when you're riffing you're trying to be funny you're saying something off the cuff it's not always going to go over perfectly and that is one of the challenges of comedy right it's 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 you're not going to hit it all the time it's not always going to be a material and unfortunately what he said it just it wasn't funny um he also was a significantly older man who I think had three friends total in the world, none of whom were black. Like, he didn't even know the vernacular he was using. You know what right. I mean? Like, he really, he thought he was being hip and cool, using the vernacular of the day, not realizing what any of that meant. Not that I'm absolving him of his, you know, responsibility in it, but, you know, we have to think about intention here, right? And, right. and context. Um. I also saw it as a black woman, right? I'm like, oh, wow, you shouldn't have gone there. Like, that was really inconsiderate. And and to use that language for young women who, and, I, and the biggest issue was, these were young women who didn't ask to be thrust into the spotlight. And that is where, you know, the, the, the saying there's honor among thieves, as curmudgeonly as Imus was, and he was, I mean, his, 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 his slogan was, we're not happy till you're not happy, right? Like, that's just how he was known. But he did have... A, a value point of, you know, you don't don't talk about anybody's children. He didn't talk about politicians' children, celebrities' children. And in his mind, these young women at Rutgers, they were children. You know, they weren't full-fledged adults. Yes, they were in school and maybe could vote, but they weren't, you know what I mean? So when he realized the after effect of what his comment had, because people, people can be cruel and people can be awful sometimes. And people would show up at their away games with T-shirts and signs. It was horrible. That's and of course, it was a media frenzy, and right. they didn't, you know, the spotlight was put on them. They didn't ask for that. Mm -hmm. They were just trying to become, you know, national champions. So when he did make his apology, he was contrite. And I, I, I sincerely believe this. I will till the day I die. Um, it was just, it was an unfortunate circumstance. And he did apologize, and he, he did try to, you know, do what he could to make up for it. Now, in that making up for it, what happened, and the reason I got the call is when he had, because he did get fired from MSNBC and from WCBS. He, uh, this is, he's why we have Morning Joe and Mika now on MSNBC, because that was right. his time slot. 
Um, but when he was given the opportunity to come back on WABC and what was initially, it was RFD TV, then it became Fox Business News. Um, he went on to Fox Business News. He, the idea, I don't know if it was his or someone else's, but you know, the idea was to diversify his staff. And so that's why I got the call. And another gentleman by the name of Tony Powell, who was also a, a black comedian, got the call. I got more of the focus because I was a woman. And of course, right. the target of his comment had been black women. Um, and I remember, I remember going back to that Larry the Cable Guy incident, right? Like, I, I want to do this. Like, I, I want to be this beacon of light and truth. I want to be able to have this conversation about race and racism in you know, on a national platform and I want to do it responsibly. Right. And I remember thinking, if I don't do this, somebody else will, mm. they will take this position and they may not do it in a responsible way. Um, but I was also terrified because I was putting my reputation on the line. I was right. putting my safety on the line. Right. I mean, at the time he was one of the most reviled men in media. And, you know, I, my mother, so funny that the di my parents, God bless them. They've been married. They'll be 56 years, uh, coming up. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. Um, my mother's like, I, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to get hurt. You know, she's the mm -hmm. protector. She didn't right. want to. And my father who also protects me was like, if you, you've got to do this, you're going to mm -hmm. wonder what if the rest of your life. And I'm like, I am, I'm going to wonder what if, and here's an opportunity to do something really big and really grand and really powerful and, and, and be a voice where there isn't one. And so I said, yes, as scared as I was. And, oh, I was so scared, Laura. Oh, I was so scared. I didn't sleep for like two days. And I said, yes. And um, the first year was amazing. Like it was, it was my dream job. I mean, I call it my tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times because it was a dream job. It was just with a, a very damaged person. You know, and Imus was, he was an alcoholic and a drug addict who, while he wasn't drinking or taking anymore, he never sought recovery. He never went through the 12 steps. So he, I mean, he was, he himself acknowledged that he was a dry drunk, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't hide that. And so you never knew who you were going to get on a daily basis. Were you going to get the amazing Marconi award-winning genius? Or were you going to get the abusive, horrible human being who I saw make grown men cry. Um, he did ridiculous stuff, stuff that HR, like there was no HR. I mean, he brandished a loaded gun at me, like crazy stuff. Oh my stuff. God. Like, oh yeah, like crazy stuff. That's how jo Janice Dean, the Fox News meteorologist, right, she and I bonded over that yeah. because he, he'd done similar things to her. Like, so he had a track record. It wasn't just me, right? right. But after he got comfortable and because he was so his ego was so fragile. Um, he, he, he eventually kind of started taking things out on me and it got to, to the point where fans of the show would write me and ask if he was being that mean to me on the air. Uh, like be, if it was intentional because it wasn't funny anymore. Like it was wow. past the curmudgeon mm -hmm. personality, but what they heard on the air was only like 10% of what was happening off the air. It was full on abuse. It was horrible. But I never let him see me cry, and I refused to quit. And when I, I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown, actually, um, you know, you can't go on the air day after day after day and be told you're fat, you're stupid, you're not funny. I have no idea how you got into Oxford. Like, just like daily, just being berated daily, it it, it takes its toll on you. Sure. Um, and so I remember thinking, I'm either going to Bellevue, <laughs> the mental hospital, or I'm going to Bali. 
And I'm like, if I'm spending that kind of money, I'm going someplace pretty. So <laughs> I hopped my happy brown butt on a plane to Bali for two weeks. But 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 what was that moment, Kareth? I mean, were you? I mean, clearly to put up with an abusive situation anywhere, whether it's your home life or whether it's at work, right? At some point you have to say, okay, it's just not worth it. And for a lot of people, it can be hard to make that decision for a host of reasons, right? So maybe talk about the thought process and what was it that finally, if if brandishing a gun at your head was not enough, what was it that when you said, you know what, enough... And here's what I'm going to do next. It was it was going to Bali. It was going to Bali and realizing how it was affecting me physically, mentally, like being able to step away from it. Like I was fortunate enough to be able to afford that. I was fortunate enough to be able to have the time to do that. And I, I tell you, my empathy, my conscious empathy level for people who are in abusive situations, I mean, rose tenfold. Because I got it, like you, you, and it, because every day wasn't a bad day, right? Right, and you're there thinking, I'm, it's, I can make it better, right? It sucks you in, right? Way, yeah, uh, if I just totally, stay, it's going to totally. be better. Yeah, and the yeah. narcissism, right, that accompanies it from the person who's the abuser, right? It just, it was life changing. Um, but at, at one point, I, I, when I was in Bali, I had this really wild dream, a very prophetic dream. We were sitting across from each other, Imus and I, cross-legged. And he said, I don't think it's working out. I'm going to let you go. And he kissed me. It wasn't a weird kiss. It was just like, you know, peck. And, um, and I woke up and I came back. And two days later after I came back, he calls me. He's like, hey, look, um, I've been thinking about this. Uh, things aren't really going. I, I, I think, you know, it would be better if we, we kind of amicably, amicably went our own ways. I'm like, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Because I wasn't going to quit. I was not going to let him forced me out like wow. I'd spoken with other like I wasn't gonna let him do it I couldn't I couldn't Laura I couldn't and and maybe that was my ego and maybe that was my you know weakness but I refused to let him hurt me like that win he was not gonna win like that and so but I had to go into a place of recovery afterwards and I I was also in a romantic relationship that was not healthy um it wasn't physically abusive but it was with someone who also was very angry and this is what happened when I was in Bali. This was a really powerful moment. I had a horrible asthma attack my first 24 hours there. I'd gone for, first week was a manifestation retreat. The second week I was just going to go all around on my own. My first 24 hours there, you know, we think Bali's the beaches and the beautiful, and it is, but I was in the part where there was a rainforest. So it was like, <laughs> you know, damp and humid and a little mold and like the worst place for an asthmatic to go, right? So I get there and like my inhalers aren't working. Like the people I'm with, I'm like, I need to, I need to, I think I need to go to the hospital. I need a a, a nebulizer treatment. I need a shot of adrenaline. Like I've had this my whole life. I know what I need. And they're like, well, you know, let's, let's take, let's take you to this woman. She, 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 she runs a fertility clinic in town. And I go, um, that's not the part of my body I'm having an issue with, but thanks. I'll keep that in mind. But I was like, whatever, when in Rome. So I, ju- I trust it, right? I'm like, okay, God would not have me in this place if I wasn't. Sp- so I go to this woman, this bright blonde-haired woman with these gorgeous bright blue aqua eyes, and she cups my back and she gives me acupuncture and she opens my lungs, like almost instantaneously. Wow. And then she's like, let me see your tongue. I show her my tongue. She's like, oh, honey, how long are you here? I come here for two weeks. She goes, you need to see me every day that you're here. 
And so she gave me treatments every day that I was there that we could. And about day two or three, we just started really like opening up to one another. And, um, and she's like, where are you from? What do you, you know, how did you, how did you get here? How did you get into the state of being? I said, well, I'm from Texas. I went to school in Missouri. She goes, what school? I go, oh, you've never heard of it. This tiny women's college in Columbia, Missouri. She goes, what school? I go, Stevens College. She goes, I went there. Really? I said, what? She goes, I go, you went to, she goes, yeah, I went to see. We'd gone to the same school 30 years apart and we meeting on the other side of the world. That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So. Then I start telling her, you know, look, I, I, physically, I don't know what happened. I just, I just know that I haven't been eating well. I'm in a really stressful job. I said, my boss is a jerk and mean. My boyfriend's a jerk and mean. And I go, I don't get it. I'm the nicest person I know. And this is when she said what she said to me that I will never forget. She goes, sweetie, I hate to tell you this, but you're the constant. And I was so taken aback. I, I My first thought was, I can't believe you just dared to say that to me. And then I thought, how dare you tell me that I'm part responsible for what's happening in my life? Wow. <laughs> and that was like, I wish I could have said it, like the heavens opened up and the angels started uh-huh. singing. And But I heard what she said. It took a while to marinate. It took a month, actually. She wasn't saying I was responsible for their behavior, but right. I was responsible for being there. And I had to own that. And that's what I did. And I also realized that while I was accusing them of being my abusers, and they were, like, not to say that they weren't, but I was also abusive to myself. I wasn't honoring myself. I didn't hold myself as worthy, which allowed those doors to be open, those windows to be open for those people to treat me the way that they did. That was a huge aha. That was like the moment. That was an epiphany of like, even if I he hadn't called me to tell me I quit or I was, you know, we were ending our arrangement or agreement, I probably would have found the strength to leave. Um, but right after, there was an incident involving, coincidentally, another Rutgers University student, a young man by the name of Tyler Clemente. He took his life by jumping off the George Washington Bridge because he had been outed by his roommate and some classmates who secretly recorded him in an intimate situation with another young man. And I remember hearing that story and it just breaking my heart because I thought nobody should feel that alone for whatever it is that they feel differentiates them from the status quo, whatever it is there, you know, someone's ethnicity, their sexuality, their socioeconomic status, nobody should feel like they're that alone. What can I do to help? And that was the impetus for creating what was called stereotyped 101, but is now inversity. And Mm -hmm. so that's, that's how we came into this place. It was this desire to let people know that they're not alone, that we really are in this together and we have more in common than we don't. So to ever think that your only recourse is to take your own life because you're not feeling like you're belonging or part of something, you know, if I could keep that from happening ever again, that was my goal. I love that. What an amazing story. Wow. Friend, I hate to cut it off, but that concludes part one of my two-part conversation with Kareth Foster. You'll find part two in episode 219, where we'll pick up right where we left off and we'll dive right into Kareth's book, You Can Be Perfect or You Can Be Happy. Kareth shares lots more lessons that she learned the hard way. I think you're going to love it, so be sure to check it out. 
until then, I hope you found this investment in you worthwhile, and I would love to hear your feedback on this or any of our She Said, She Said podcast episodes. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, episode 218. You'll find those at she said, she said podcast.com. And there you'll also find a link to Kareth's book and to the policy circle where Kareth and I met. I am grateful to you, friend, for joining me. And if you have a minute, please share some love in the form of a review on iTunes. I would be especially grateful for that too. Those reviews help me improve our content and give you a better product week over week. And it's what friends do. So I'd be really, really grateful. Until next week, you take care. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.